I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's not necessarily about like shining the light on reconciliation. I don't really, that's not my business. I'm here to reflect the beauty of my people to themselves so that they may know, so that we may walk forward and share ourselves in a way that knows our intrinsic beauty and value. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That is Jeremy Dutcher. You just heard the Polaris Prize winning singer, composer, musicologist, and activist from the Wollastowiak Nation. More with them later in the show. So, Thomas, you've recently gone through a pretty serious separation. <laughs> I love that you chose the word separation and not breakup. <laughs> um, yes, I am no longer seeing my therapist. And that's a pretty big deal for me. As you know, I've been seeing her for a long time. This week would have been 10 years. Her name is Carol. I feel, I don't know if I can just call her my therapist. And I think she knew me better than my own mother knew me, mm. honestly. So I started seeing her in September 2011. Um, at the time, I was still drinking. I was, you know, the reason why I was I started therapy was so much shit was happening in my life. I wasn't speaking to my mom. I was like kind of in a professional dead end and really didn't know what to do or where to go. And I started seeing her. Um, but it's been like such a profound profound relationship and profound process. What was Carol's office like? Oh, wow. So she, her office was in her apartment. She lived on the third floor um, of this building, one, not even a block away from the big park in Montreal, the Mount Earl Park. She had these like essential oils and there's this really specific smell. And I never wanted to ask her what the smell was because I felt that if I bought it for my house, it would just, <laughs> I would be cheating. That's the smell of my therapist's office. It shouldn't smell like this in my apartment. <laughs> Carol is this tiny blonde woman and she never had children, really well-traveled. She loved to travel, like, and especially paying for therapy when you're like, oh, I'm funding your trip to Japan <laughs> and then another year, your trip to New Mexico and all these trips that she took. She actually was older than I thought. And well, in the end, now that she's retired, she, she's 69, um, but she seemed younger. But so what, if you're comfortable answering, what did you talk about in the last session and What's the last thing that you said to each other? Well, it was kind of a, at the beginning of therapy 10 years ago, I was in a lot of pain because I felt that I couldn't really live as a good person. I felt I had to protect myself and I had, I felt I had to like harm myself in a lot of ways with alcohol and drugs and sex and, and whatever. And she told me at the end that, I was a good person and I was worthy. And that was sort of the big closure. Mm. And, you know, we've talked about this before and it's very Oprah-like and she, you know, 
she really helped me kind of accept that sweet boy who lives inside of me. And I think for a lot of people, it's like we, especially queer people, we bury that sweetness. We protect that sweetness. We don't want people to take advantage of Uh. us. She told me to trust myself that I had everything that I needed to do what I wanted to do. It was just a very like uplifting conversation. At the end, 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 when we got up, um, she uh, came to hug me. Mm. And I never had any physical touch, maybe a handshake for like New Year's, but never had any physical touch with her. So that was a little bit bizarre. Um, when I left, I cried like on the street, like leaving leaving the, the session. Is there a possibility to be friends with your therapist? Especially when you've been together for as long well, as you have. That's the thing. That last session was in June and we're now in September and I I miss her. I miss seeing her every two weeks. I miss like telling her how things are going. I miss her knowing about my family, my life, my boyfriend, you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I told her about you. Um, and I miss these conversations because she, I really felt that she was the one person who could see me as I am. It was my time. You know, once a week I had this space where I could just be with someone who would just take me as I am, regardless if I was in a good mood, a bad mood, sad, happy. So now that your therapist is retired, are you going to find a new therapist? Do you feel like you're okay on your own now without her? I do. I do. It was a really interesting summer. Um, I've certainly developed, I have certainly developed uh, healthy coping mechanisms. Like as undramatic as it sounds, like I know how to deal with shit now that I really wasn't able to deal with 10 years ago. Um, so I can, I can go to people. I don't know that I would get a new therapist yet or, and even her, she told me, she was like, you got to live a little though. If I'm completely honest, um, I have to say, (laughs) so a few months ago, I was still in therapy, but a few months ago, I was like, I need help to lose that dad bod, that sort of quarantine weight. And I found this guy in London. So now I have a new (laughs) Personal trainer, I guess, in London, a younger Welsh guy named James. Okay. If well, you want to know everything. And shout out to James. <laughs> I had a Zoom call with him today. And um, I think he's my new Carol. All right. Let's see. Let's let's see if you stick with James for 10 years. <laughs> Jeremy Dutcher is our guest today. He is a classically trained singer and composer from the Tobique First Nation in New Brunswick. After living in Halifax and Toronto, Jeremy moved to Montreal at the beginning of the pandemic of all times. His composition sample, traditional Wollastuck songs recorded on wax cylinders in 1907, to which he adds his own supremely beautiful melodies. And in a way, his music is the meeting place between the past and future of Indigenous culture. I have to admit, in reading about Jeremy and listening to his music, there were a lot of Wolastic words that I did not know how to pronounce. And I want to get it right. It's so important to get it right. And I was a bit nervous about that. But Jeremy was so kind and generous and patient in teaching me how to say these words properly.
if you can forgive my ignorance for a moment, can you just tell me the proper pronunciation of your nation? Because I've heard different pronunciations, and I just want to make sure that I get it right. So, okay. So I I usually break it down like this, because if you understand, like, the, the... Our languages are what's called polysynthetic, so they're like like our words are built like building blocks. So they're like they take the complexity of the word like kind of grows and grows and grows, and that's why we have these really long words. So uh, the river from where we come from is called the Wolostok. So that's Wolostok. the Wolostok River. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the language that we speak uh, is called Wolostokwe. So it's Wolostokwe. So Wolostokwe. Perfect. So okay. it's kind of like related to that river. So it's the language of the river. Right. Uh, and then we call ourselves, we stick a different kind of suffix onto the Wulustu word. So it's Wulustu Iik. So Wulustu Iik. Okay, that one's a bit people. trickier. Wulustu Iik? <laughs> yeah, that pretty that's kind pretty, of close. That's, <laughs> that's really close yeah okay yeah, yeah. okay uh, honestly thank you so much and it's so beautiful to actually like understand like that building of the words that you describe that's really really beautiful I, yeah oh it's such a i i, I sorry i just have to circle back to to that because that was such a beautiful interaction we just had and i think it's like so important to understand that like we just gotta ask the questions you know to understand each other a little bit better because i think there's there's such a there's been such a missed opportunity this whole time. Now we're turning the bus around, and I think it's really uh, an exciting time to just kind of ask the questions and get it wrong until we get it right. <laughs> totally. You know what I'm saying? I, absolutely. And you just bring like this openness and this loving energy to everything that you do that is so inspiring. No, it's and and part of your work, obviously, for people who have no idea, I think your 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 kind of genius really came through on your debut album where you used old recordings of people singing in your language from the early 20th century. <laughs> Before we go into your music, I want to learn more about these recordings. So what is the story? How did you end up digitizing and and hearing those recordings in your language? Oh my gosh, like I didn't even know they could record back then. These are some of the, and these are some of the very first recorded sound pieces, you know? So like when I went to go sit with these, uh, like what's called a wax cylinder. So it's like before the records, before there was like any of that technology. And uh, when somebody would would speak into like a gramophone, it would etch onto the wax the sound wave. And so on the on the cylinders that that I got to go to the museum and and and, and look at, uh, these were collected by uh, an anthropologist named William H. Meshling, and he he went and he lived among the Wulustuwiyig for about seven years. So sort of living among the people and collecting stories and songs and photographs and doing all of this really important collection and uh, and then kind of just took it to the museum, you know, uh, and, and deposited all those, those wonderful things there, um, which, you know, I, of course, I'm so grateful for that work, you know, it's like now a hundred and, you know, 10 years later, I get to go back and and, and, and do that. But, the, but, but for me, the, the problem was that these, these pieces of material culture weren't accessible for our people because these songs don't belong to the museum. They don't belong to that anthropologist. They don't, they belong to all of the, all of our people. And so, um, 
that's kind of where the idea to make a record came in and like arrange these songs. And the classical element, I don't know, it's just uh, sort of the weird intersection at which I was musically educated. I mean, it's not it's not weird, but it is really interesting. And you pointed out that intersection because you do have this sort of classical music background, you know, and the world of classical music is sort of rooted in a conservative, colonial, white male paradigm. And your work is so much about your culture and language and futurism. And I mean, how do those worlds coexist for you and your work and your vision of what you do? Well, to be honest, it's like they kind of inform one another in a really important way, right? Because I don't think I actually would have done what I did if if, if the, that institution of classical music education hadn't have been so rigid in its form, you know, and, and, and provided such a, a really uh, narrow path in, 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 in precisely in what you're getting at, which is like, whose songs are we singing? You know, and um, I did not see when, when I looked at the content that's, that, that was there, I did not see myself reflected in that. And so, um, yeah, uh, I, in the wise words of Buffy St. Marie, if, if what you want is not on the menu, um, go into the kitchen, cook it up and show them how good it tastes. And for me, that's like when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's it. That's it right there. That's exactly what I want to do. And then Are maybe you- I, maybe I never quite got there, too. And that's why I'm doing <laughs> what I'm doing. Right. Because you I- forge you forge your own path. You yeah. forge your own path. We, we say of people who sing that they, they need to sing because they can't express certain things speaking. What do you express in singing that you can't express in speaking? Oh, that's a really, really good question. I think <laughs> because I haven't been able to uh, sing in the same way as, you know, I'm like, I'm in one of these like little three, three floor walk-ups, you know, I don't. I got neighbors. I'm not trying to like get evicted or whatever, you know? So (laughs) basically I'm trying to get to your question to say that I think it's anger, (laughs) you know, and I think it's pain. Um, But when you don't have that outlet, um, it has to go somewhere. And so I've been like writing a lot and like getting it through my hands and, uh, and trying to practice every day. And, uh, but it's difficult, you know, because there's been a lot of, Nothing new, but there's a lot this year, you know, and I think, uh, I think like, for instance, just within my own family, it's, it's understanding that, yeah, that being in the news is, is, it it might not be about my community directly, you know, and yet for all of the survivors in my nation that have, that went to those schools, like my mother, uh, it's like, uh, it, it brings up a lot of like what they saw, you know, and what was witnessed. And I think, uh, yeah, well, that was a really hard time. It's Sorry. interesting that you bring up your mom. Uh, now she is a survivor, of course, and you bring up anger also. And doing the work that you do, and we spoke about your language earlier, and I know that growing up, at some point she got ashamed of speaking that language. So how has singing uh, allowed you to heal that, that in her? And how is she reacting to the work that you do? And that anger that you express in singing, but also that can be probably very, very healing for the family. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think like for, for, for me, especially at a, at a very like micro level, like I think it is my healing, you know, to go and to get that out and, and, and to be that, uh, you know, space for, for us to go and collectively grieve together. You know, I say like often the shows that I, that I put on when I invite people into a concert hall, it can be a super emotionally charged space, right? Because there's not a lot of places that we have 
to uh, expel these these forms of grief. Um, of course, yeah, I think for my mother, um, you know, Walustigwai was the only language that she spoke until um, until she went into the day schools, and so uh, she learned English in in these spaces. But what I think was, you know, the 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 sort of implicit the 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 tacit shame that was like went along with the teaching of like, well, there's nothing there in your language for you. You know, that's not going to do you any good. Uh, it was these kind of narratives that were sort of seeping into very young minds, you know? And so there's a whole generation that, that, that absorbed a lot of these messages and, and doesn't value the language. And she's actually, she's just started to begin work on, on fundraising and like uh, uh, building the first Wolostogwe immersion school. Uh, in our territory, so it's 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 hugely exciting. I think she's like really, you know. I'm always like people want to interview me. I'm like I'm not the one you need to be talking to. You gotta talk to Mama Bear. She's the one. Yeah, yeah. That's really amazing, though. So, but it becomes this like uh, kind of way that we can teach each other because I, she grew up speaking the language but not reading it, right? Because the 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 reading system for our language is only maybe. 25 years old, 25 or 30 years old. So she didn't grow up writing it, but I had access to that. So I, and our generation is kind of the first one with that. So now like we can, we text in a language now. It's like kind of fun because we're, we're kind of communicating in a whole new way that wasn't even possible, you know, uh, for me 10 years ago. And I think it's important for listeners to really, when you say that the language is, is uh, you know, only 100 people still speak the language based on what you've said. Uh, UNESCO calls it a severely endangered language. So hmm. it's like uh, because there's like less than 100 fluent speakers left. I think the thread through all of this to me is also the sort of like spiritual resonance that I find in your music. And and you've spoken. And one reason I wanted to, to speak to you was to hear you, you know, Tell us more about the the your connection to the elders and to the ancestors, because I, you know, I'm a white Canadian, I'm a settler Canadian, and, you know, my connection to my ancestors is very blurry. It's not something I think about. I don't know, you know, I know the big history, but I don't know much about my own specific ancestors. And you've said, you've spoken so much about this in interviews, but I think there's something so beautiful. So my bigger question is really about your sort of spiritual life, but also how that's connected to the your 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 real ancestors and the stories that are a part of your your family and your people yeah i guess when i look at that's that, that's such a beautiful question i really want to answer it in like a couple different ways because i think for me um yeah the idea of ancestor um is one that i want to like complicate and dig into um and understand it from a more nuanced perspective, because I think like um, sometimes when ancestors spoken into the conversation, we think about it as the ones that are back there, right? You know, the ones that led the way and forged the past and whatever. We're here now, and it's not nice. Um, but understanding like um, when we talk, um, and if you spend some time, you know, gathered with indigenous people, you'll probably hear the phrase. So that and Dolnabamak, all my relations, you know, and, and, and there's a second part to that phrase that we say, particularly among the Wolustubuyuk, and it's uh, So that means the ones who went before and the ones yet to come. So we, we place ourselves in the continuum of ancestors, um, both 
the ones who have forged that path and gone before, and also ourselves as future ancestors to those ones that we are clearing the path for in this moment. Uh, and I really think that like, it's a transformational time, you know, even the fact that we're able to sit here and talk for you, Thomas, yourself to say, I'm a settler here. I want to, I, I don't know. I want to do my best though. And I'm asking the questions, you know, that I think we're at, we're at such a, a different moment than, than the, the Canada that my mother grew up in, you know? And so, so I look at the growth and I, and that gives me hope and, and that gives me, uh, when things are hard and I don't get to sing it out, you know, uh, it, the, the, the hope is also what under undergirds everything. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Canada, you are in the midst of indigenous renaissance. Are you ready to hear? Are you ready to hear the truths that need to be told? Are you ready to see the things that need to be seen? The moment that you got up there in that speech, like, is one day going to be regarded as historic? I'm sure of it. And your speech was so prescient, you know, and so pointing to, in many ways, the moment that we're going through now. And as many of us know, in this last year, you know, the genocide that occurred in Canada's residential schools has been exposed to the mainstream. But I mean, I'm sure you didn't know exactly what this reckoning would look like, or maybe you did, um, but you saw something coming in that moment that you accepted that prize. And if you're comfortable, I'm wondering if you could talk about the connection between that moment and what's happening now. We tried to tell y'all. We tried, <laughs> yes, to, tell, we tried to tell y'all. Uh, no, fuck, I have to joke about this because, like, wow, I know. This is, it's heavy stuff, you know, and it's like... Um, yeah, of course, this is this is something that we've known within our communities for a really long time. It's no secret. And, and, and it shouldn't have taken bodies in the ground, you know. It shouldn't have taken a number, you know. It shouldn't have taken empiricism to get to a place where we can actually start to be empathetic for the Indigenous experience. Because I can't force anyone to feel sympathy or, or, or empathy uh, for Indigenous people. But what I do hope is, and what's beautiful about this moment, is that we are all now shouldering that burden together, right? It's no longer just Native people that have to think about graveyards every time we walk past the Catholic Church, you know? And like, what has gone on in this country? Um, 
And I hope that uh, this is um, inspiring people rather than feeling guilt is to act, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm always like, actually, did like I'm glad we can get to like a place where we feel bad, okay? Yeah. But this is not, it doesn't do anything, you know? It doesn't actually solve uh, this real shit situation we got right now you know and right now is the time when we need like big solutions and work to be done so so i'm always like okay yeah but what's the action you know like how are we how are we engaging with the communities that are around us because indigenous people are everywhere we're everywhere in every community in every city you know and um and often we're 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 struggling the hardest in those communities and so uh i i think it, it 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 it, it sits with all of us to see how we can go and make that right today. One, one, and I, I think I want to sort of broaden to a lot of the changes that have been happening in, in the last 10 years. And obviously there's indigenous history, but also all sorts of oppressions and, 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 you know, state sponsored violence, again, different types of bodies and different people. And I think, you know, you've said in a speech also in 2019 at the Junos that, you know, it, it yeah. wasn't going to happen in a year, <laughs> which, you know, there was a sense of hope that it could happen. Well, okay. Um, so so you, for for me, it's yeah. like what. But, but, but when we talk about a word like this, like what are we? What are we really getting at the root of? Mm-hmm. Because I don't know that I have anything to reconcile. I know. No, that's I'm the felt, thing. That's what I, I mean. I know who I am. You know, I got I, I got access to my language. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know. So right. so, I think the healing really needs to 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 be an inward one with with settler Canada with 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 people with people actually having these conversations in their own family in their churches in their community halls amongst each other because it's like we can't we can't spend the time to to go educate everybody about our humanity it just needs to be accepted well, there and we need to go forward and there are these there are these words like reconciliation and I'm thinking of the word tolerance. Like as a, as a gay person, I don't care about being tolerated. You know, like I think like a lot of these well-meaning kind of, you know, press release, you know, branded words about inclusion are pointless in so many ways. Well, you know, what, what's, what's really come up for me is like coming up against uh, an ideology um, from the non-indigenous world that 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 says that respect needs to be earned. I don't understand that one bit. Yeah. Respect is 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 all around us. It is the first law of creation. We have to respect each other, you know? Uh, and, and for me, when we make that like a, a carrot or like a, a, a reward for, for good behavior, it's it's a it's a it's a way of social control. You know, and that's not it's not um, it's not our teachings. It's not how we're taught to, to live to live on this land. And so, yeah, we're in a moment right now where we're healing. You know, we're doing a lot of healing within our own circles, within, with you know, bringing, and, and that's through the music. That's through the bringing language back. That's through the, the resurrection of our ceremonies and our laws and, and all those ways. It's not necessarily about, like, shining the light on reconciliation. I don't really, that's not my business. I'm here to reflect the beauty of my people to themselves so that they may know, so that we may walk forward and share ourselves in a way that um, knows our intrinsic beauty and value. I find it interesting and cool that like in recent years, you know, our community has been more and more and more inclusive. And in my lifetime, it's been, you know, uh, pretty incredible trajectory. Um, but I think there's this still this conception for a lot of, um, you know, settler queer people that, you know, 
being two spirit is there's an element of newness which is so untrue false that's not what it is so so if you had to you know i like i don't know if you saw this last week but um tommy dorfman who's a an american actor instead of coming out as trans clarified their identity as trans in the media and i i love that and what could you if you had to clarify what it means to be two-spirit to the rest of the queer community, um, what would you tell people who look like me and people uh, and people in, the, in our, our community? That's such a beautiful question. Thank you for that, Thomas. Um, wow. Yeah. What, how would I, how would I sort of elucidate that term? It's like, it's, it's, I guess with a lot of difficulty is the answer with a lot of nuance and like um, what I think, because it goes right to the root of the whole misunderstanding of settler and, and indigenous relations, right? Which is that we're not one thing, you know, we're not Indians, you know, it's like uh, there's, there's such a diversity and breadth of understanding of different systems of gender within, with, from nation to nation. You know, so, for example, like the way that the Cree talk about, you know, that gender variation is going to be very different from how the Mi'kmaq talk about it or the people on the West Coast or the Inuit or like. And so there's all these different systems. Right. Um, so there's there's many ways of understanding what that what that that two spirit means. Right. And, and, and what I think is important to acknowledge is that it is kind of a it's a recent term in parlance for in English. So it actually came in the 90s forward from activists within that. We're sort of at the intersection of like native and gay. <laughs> you know, these are kind of the languages that we were using at the time, right? But as we dig into that, like, and as those people started to meet each other from, from different native nations, they started to be like, oh, there's some kind of shared experience where we don't actually kind of, we definitely, you know, post-colonization don't always fit into our native communities. And a lot of the times we don't fit into our queer communities either because there's other racism or just even a misunderstanding about who we are and, and what, where we come from. So I think there was this need to have a, a, a term that sewed both together, you know, that spoke to that, that true intersection of experience. I think, and that's why two-spirit people are particularly important because we bring these lessons of healing from our indigenous communities because we've been working through this stuff for a real long time and we, we have that sense of spirit, we have that sense of, uh, of connectedness to, to big C community, um, that I think there is a real opportunity for our, our, our queer brothers and sisters to also listen up and say, like, hey, like, that's a road of healing that we need to go on as well with spirit, you know, and I think we can learn from each other and, and lift each other up through that process. Jeremy Dutcher. His debut album, Wolastawig Lintuwaganawa, is streaming everywhere. You can order the vinyl on his website, and he's working on a new album, so make sure to stay tuned for that. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with? I am obsessed with the recent Dolce & Gabbana Haute Couture show in Venice. Oh, God. First of all, I just want to say this is not an endorsement of Dolce & Gabbana, who are, like, 
pretty terrible people. They've said really horrible things in the past about racist, homophobic, <laughs> uh, like these messages. And, and the receipts are everywhere and they don't care. They don't care. I mean, I guess they have enough money to not care. And they're still buying like a ton of celebrity sponsorship. They clearly paid J-Lo a ton of money to come to the show. Well, that's what's crazy. So they organized this fashion event. I think it's four runway shows in Venice. And they flew literally all these celebrities from L.A. to just come for the week. Right. And that's how I first got wind of the show was because of J-Lo's Instagram account. She posted these pictures. She's wearing something that looks like you'd wear to the Met Gala. It is just so unbelievably over the top. She looks like an Italian clown mixed with, I don't know, like a gay pope. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I started like seeing footage from the actual show, which I know they're canceled, but some of those looks were really amazing. (laughs) Like there were definitely things where I was like, okay, add to cart. (laughs) But the funniest part of the show is that there was a hailstorm. So it's outside. This is all happening outside in beautiful Venice. And uh, people on social media were like rejoicing for the hail and being like, this is poetic justice. This is karma. So like, I mean, you couldn't make this up like this. A hailstorm on fashion insiders and celebrities in Venice during, you know, this really horrible summer. Beautiful. Yeah, it's sort of, I think it's Mother Nature's message to the rich. <laughs> like, buckle up, bitches. Okay? This shit doesn't matter anymore. This shit does not matter. And that's the funny thing, too. Like, I mean, the opulence of that show, given the global context right now, makes absolutely no sense. But they're sense. trolls. Dolce & Gabbana are trolls. <laughs> you know, they they know, they don't care. Well, look, we've seen this time and time again. When you are rich and you have resources, you can't be mm. canceled, unfortunately. Thank you, Hailstorm. But I, I hope that there is some footage that leaks of Anna Winter in the hail. I need, <laughs> I need to see that. What are you obsessed with this week? Oh, wow. So I was on vacation last week and I read a lot of books. um, But the one I read that I literally finished ugly crying. Remember when we talked about It's a Sin? Yes. Same vibe, same era, 80s, AIDS crisis. What's it called? So the trilogy is called Don't Ever Wipe Tears Without Gloves. So that's a saying that in the book, one of the nurses says at some point to another nurse not to wipe tears from an AIDS patient without gloves. So it's really dark. It's a trilogy set in 1980s Sweden, most of it in Stockholm. Um, We follow a chosen family very much like it's a sin. So at the center of the, the chosen family is a new couple, uh, Rasmus, who's this kid from, you know, three hours, five hours outside of Stockholm, and uh, Benjamin, a son of a Jehovah's Witness, who was always this like model, religious boy, and then eventually he leaves his family because he's gay. Um, and we are at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. So gay men are starting to die and they're starting to, to, to learn more about the disease. And it's a trilogy that's really sort of set up as this arc between, you know, the falling in love and then the disease kind of sort of getting into the community and in the end death. These are really the three themes of the the novel. And I read it all in two days, over 800 pages. Wow. And it's been, it's been translated in so many languages, but the French translation, which I read, um, has been very popular. So I posted it on Instagram and I have like 
20 people who were like, oh my God, I read that, ugly cried, so good, so good, so good. It is a masterpiece. I can't recommend it enough. And there is a TV series, Swedish TV series produced in 2013, 2012, 2013 that I will watch. Um, don't ever wipe tears without gloves. I think it came out a few years ago, but I think it's my book of the year. Time for credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalia Ndongo is our contributing producer. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Nirani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. And we are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show and check out our column, That's the Way It Is, at extramagazine.com, xtramagazine.com. Please leave a review if you enjoy this episode and share it with a friend. Sharing is caring. We never can say goodbye. We never can say goodbye. Never. never. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.